Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A friend of mine has a theory about writer's block. He says it doesn't exist that it's just self-indulgent nonsense. He argues it's just writers with notions saying they're having a tough time in work. He does make a convincing argument, I'll give him that, by pointing out that nurses don't get nurses block or engineers don't get engineers block. They might tell you that work isn't going well, but they don't dress it up, they just get on with it. Now, I've been thinking a lot about this recently because whatever you choose to call it, writer's block or a tough time in work, I haven't been making much progress of late. It started about three weeks ago when I was writing the second episode of my upcoming series, The Road to Old Crohan, and somewhere along that journey I got waylaid. No matter what way I wrote the podcast, it just seemed wrong. Maybe I made the mistake of writing and rewriting the same thing over and over, and eventually the wheels came off, but by last Thursday they were well and truly off. I had reached a point where I knew I was in a deep hole and the only thing I could do was stop digging and take time to figure a way out. I caught up on some admin work on Friday but I needed to clear my head so last Saturday I took off on a road trip to do one of my favourite things, explore an old house. This began a very unusual day. By Saturday afternoon I was standing in the darkness in a mysterious tunnel beneath a 300 year old house. This podcast tells that story. Oh, and before I begin, in case you're a first-time listener, I should introduce myself. I'm Finn DeWire, this is the Irish History Podcast, and this episode is Irish Farmers Don't Wear Cravats. I had been planning the trip for a few days. I had decided to go to a stately home. I loved these places. Now, stately homes, if you're not familiar with them, are the type of houses where Jane Austen novels are set. Or maybe a better reference is Downton Abbey. That kind of place. Ireland is littered with the ruins of such buildings. Some mansions, some large country houses. All of them relics of landlords' families who lived in them in the 18th and 19th centuries. The ruins themselves are often a testimony to the massive change that swept through Ireland in the last 120 years. These houses symbolised inequality to many. So it was hardly any surprise that some were targeted by the revolutionary movement during the War of Independence. Others have a more mundane history and just fell into decay when they were abandoned. Ruined as they are, they're still enthralling places. 
Perhaps part of the attraction is our innate curiosity, getting inside the front door of someone else's house, even if they're long gone. Last Saturday, I'd fixed on one house in particular. I'd seen pictures of it online and it looked intriguing, but during a quick search, I had come across two separate references to a secret tunnel in the house. I was hooked. Both references lacked any detail. They were just vague passing mentions, which, if anything, just added to the allure and the mystery. I'm not quite sure what the attraction of tunnels is. Maybe we think we're going to find something at the end of them. Maybe it's something primeval to do with caves. Or maybe it's just the mystery. Anyway, armed with the possibility I might end up exploring a tunnel, I set off early. Now the journey took longer than expected, but this only added to a sense of anticipation combined with a slight but growing unease. I'd bragged to a few people I'd found this great spot, a secret place, with a secret tunnel no less, but I had a niggling doubt. If I'm honest, my research had been way too basic. I'd seen several photographs but no map and I knew there was another big house that had a similar name over a hundred miles away. I was going to feel pretty stupid if it turned out to be the wrong place. That said, I had checked the satellite images of the area and identified what seemed like an unusual grove of trees which contained odd shapes that could be the outline of a building. However, when the sat-nav announced, you've arrived at your destination, my heart sank. I had come nearly two hours and I was standing on a pretty quiet country lane. Peering into the grove of trees, I was faced with a pretty underwhelming vista. Stately homes normally have high-cut stone walls and ornate wrought-iron gates. These were designed to be, and often still are, impressive and intimidating. What I faced was little more than a loose pile of rubble, no more than a foot high, that had once been a wall. There was no sign of anything man-made in the trees, let alone a stately home. It was hard to imagine that this could ever have been a seat of power of a wealthy family. I would admit my foremost thought, however, was that this was not the type of place I was going to find a tunnel. Nevertheless, I had come this far and I wasn't going to leave without making sure. Stepping over the pile of rubble that had once been a wall, all I could think that it was too low and too feeble to be protecting anything worth seeing. I walked through the trees ahead of me and then a somewhat promising clearing opened ahead. Once I stepped through the trees, I found the first trace that all might not be lost. A trackway skirted the far side of the clearing, running from that country lane where I had started out and then continuing through an opening in the trees on the far side of the clearing. On closer inspection, this had promise. I looked back towards the road and there it was, a rusty but wrought iron gate, the type of thing you might find at the entrance to the avenue of a big house. The track itself was faint, but it was clearly a shadow of what it had once been. The remnants of a gravel surface could be seen here and there. It had clearly been laid down for some purpose a long time ago. This led somewhere. Buoyed on, I followed the track as it left the clearing. Here, the trees took on a character that was unusual. I began to suspect I'd found the right place. While I couldn't identify the exact species to save my life, I had seen similar trees before, in the grounds of the mansion owned by the Wandersford family back in Castlecomer, where I'd grown up. They're the types of trees you find in landscaped lawns and gardens. You don't find them in your average lane up to a farmyard. Something substantial clearly lay ahead. And sure enough, a few hundred metres on, it appeared. It was smaller than I anticipated, but there was no question this was the house. The National Library website had a 19th century sketch of the building and while it was now covered in ivy and completely overgrown, it was clearly the same building. 
Even though the historian in me should have focused on that building and its history, I was increasingly thinking about the tunnel that was, according to the internet at least, somewhere here. The track that brought me to the house curled around the front of the building and then trailed off to the side. I only went as far as what had originally been the front door. Now it was a gaping wound in the front of the building and the steps visible in the National Library sketch were long gone, presumably robbed for stone. I climbed inside, but the house immediately felt strange. Now not in some sort of superstitious way, but in its appearance. Nature had completely taken over. The ceilings and upper floors were completely gone and daylight poured in from above. But it was strangely tidy. Well, tidy might not be the right word, but what I'm getting at is that you would expect to find debris from the upper floors everywhere as they had collapsed on some stormy night, but there was no trace whatsoever. This left me wondering when the house had been abandoned. My research had been scant enough, and the last reference I had seen mentioned a family had taken up residence in the 1870s, but judging on the state of the building, they hadn't stayed very long. There was no sense whatsoever anyone had ever lived here. Every last shred of evidence of human habitation was gone. Often in houses like this you'll find a shred of wallpaper or maybe some rotting furniture, but here even the plaster had fallen off the walls, revealing bare stone. Everything was gone, down to the window and door frames. It was ominous. It had a feeling that maybe something bad had happened here. Now many similar houses of this kind were burned during the Irish War of Independence, but there was no evidence of a fire on the building. The only thing that seemed to explain the state of the structure was that someone had consciously packed up the house and moved away, taking absolutely everything they could move, save the bare stone walls. However, these musings about the fate of the building and its owners, while interesting, were a distraction. The historian in me had long been pushed aside and my brain was constantly recalibrating on the tunnel that was somewhere in this building. I wanted to see it and I set off on the hunt. At the back of the house I found what I was looking for, the staircase. Sadly, this was more where the staircase had once been rather than the structure itself. Now this hadn't been removed, but instead it seemed to have collapsed into the basement below. All that was left now was a pile of debris that had crashed through the floors. There was no way down, but the extensive cellars were visible below, and this wet my appetite. If there was a tunnel, it surely began somewhere down there. However, accessing this would not be easy. When the staircase had collapsed, it had destroyed what seems to have been the only corridor in the building that connected the two sides of the house and it seemed to me that there must be another entrance to the basement on that side I hadn't yet explored. So retracing my steps, I continued back out through the front door and followed the track that wound its way around the side of the house. I hoped this might lead to the servant's entrance, and there surely I would find access to the basement. Now this track didn't run far. It only ran around the side of the house to a gate. The actual gates themselves were long gone, to be honest, they would have seemed out of place in a house where everything that was removable had been taken away. I turned into what would once have been the courtyard and I instinctively froze. There, across the courtyard, stood an old man, his head down, fumbling at something. He hadn't seen me and I immediately stepped back out of view. I wasn't sure what to do. In that moment, my mind raced. Who was he? This house was in the middle of nowhere, so why was he here? Then I got a hold of myself. I listened to way too many true crime podcasts. Logic dictated he was just the local farmer. So I walked back around the corner, but he still didn't notice me. He was totally engrossed in whatever he was toying with. 
I beckoned to him from a distance and said hello. He raised his head slowly and looked for the briefest of moments before asking, Who are you? I replied by saying I'd come to the house and emphasised how far I'd travelled, hoping this would make some difference in case he was thinking of asking me to leave. I hadn't answered his question, however, and he asked again, Who are you? This time I felt there was a bit of a you-don't-belong-here inferred in the sentence. I introduced myself and said I was interested in the house. He seemed unimpressed, but was actually very polite. Look around the house all you want, he said. I commented how it was lovely and he replied that it had once been. He wasn't wrong there. Truthfully, the house wasn't beautiful. Interesting, for sure, but not beautiful. He started to move closer. He was old. Now I'm hopeless with ages, but he was 80 if he was a day. However, his appearance was unusual. At first glance, he looked like any Irish farmer. He was wearing trousers, shirt, jumper and jacket, and his clothes were soiled with the signs of hard work of dirt, mud and oil. However, what caught my eye was a bright purple-coloured cravat around his neck. A cravat, if you're not familiar with it, is a form of necktie, but it's wider. It seemed totally out of place in what was a farmyard. As he approached, I asked him why the house was so badly damaged. I was hoping he might have heard the story, or at least have had some sense of what happened to this building. He was decisive in his answer. He hadn't heard the story. He had seen it. During the last war, he began... This was the strangest turn of phrase. What was the last war? What was he talking about? I initially assumed he meant the War of Independence, but the man would need to be 110 to remember that. I had little time to think before he continued. Dev couldn't import lead and it got fierce expensive, so it was stripped out of houses like this. The Dev he was referencing there was Eamon de Valera, the Irish Taoiseach or Prime Minister from the early 1930s through to the late 1940s. He was clearly talking about the Second World War. I was stunned. The house had only fallen into disrepair in the last 80 years, although it explained a lot. It hadn't been burned or anything like that. It had been stripped out rather than allowed to deteriorate. I went on to ask him if he knew who had lived in the house and what happened to them, and then he dropped something of a bombshell when he mentioned nonchalantly, I did. After this, he seemed a bit lost, almost as if he was back walking through the building he had lived in as a boy. There was twenty, maybe thirty rooms he started. A library, a breakfast room and a room where the ladies sat. Trying to gain a sense of the house, I asked him, was there a ballroom? There was, he said, but qualified it with a remark that only someone who lived in a house with a ballroom could make when he added, it wasn't very big. His appearance now made a certain degree of sense. His cravat, while perhaps seeming an odd attire for a farmyard, would not have seemed so unusual in a house of this size back in its heyday. However, I had interrupted him in his work and he in mine. He had been fixing a water pipe of some kind and I was on the hunt for a tunnel. His mind slowly turned back to the water and he started to explain it a bit. It was a dry summer, he observed, and when he talked me through his unusual water system, he mentioned that he had two pumps and pointed to a shed that seemed to house one of the mechanisms. Then, with a hint of pride, he said neither had run dry in the near drought the country has suffered this summer. He did briefly return to the history of the building and gestured to two arches cut into the gable end of the house, explaining how it had once been where the coaches were parked, but long before his time it had been a room inside the house itself. He added that the basement could be accessed through there. I didn't say anything. I didn't want to mention or ask about the tunnel. He was happy for me to go in, and I was afraid he would tell me not to if I mentioned the tunnel. 
After this, he swung the conversation back to the water system and he seemed less interested in me. Maybe he was hinting at the fact that he had work to do. Rather than try and pull him back into a conversation about the house and his childhood where he lived, I let him go and I wandered into the garage. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. In what had been once the coach house, I came across the first evidence of the life once lived in this building. While nearly everything else had been stripped out, on the floor of the coach house was an engine block, or rather what remained of a rusted engine block of a car. To the side was the steering wheel, still attached to a long pole. The car itself had long rusted away. Maybe when the house had been taken apart in the 1940s, the car had been parked up, and now, 80 years later, this was all that remained. The entrance into the basement was through a door, or rather a doorway. Everything else, including the frame, was gone. Back in the day, there must have been a staircase down into the lower level, but that too was no more. However, the floor beneath wasn't too far down, so I lowered myself into the bowels of the building. Down here, for the first time, I had arrived in what felt more like a normal house. I was standing in a large room with a brick ceiling, which was still intact. In the far wall, there was an opening a doorway which led into a corridor. This was promising. I moved across the room and looking through the doorway, a passageway lay in front of me, maybe a hundred metres long, maybe less, but it ran the entire length of the house. At the far end of the corridor, light flooded in through a hole in the wall that had once been a window and this illuminated three doorways on either side of the corridor. This was where the kitchen and the stores of the house were located, where the servants would have toiled day in, day out. As I walked down the corridor, looking in one room after another, it struck me that there was something ironic about the fact that it was the servants' quarters that had survived best when the house had been designed to keep their existence out of sight and out of mind. The best preserved room down here was the kitchen. Set at the back of the house, there was three large windows cut high into the walls. These were something of an architectural wonder that maximised the light down here. The ceiling was high with a beautiful brick vault and to the left was the all-important fireplace. There had probably been a large cooker here at one point, but that too, like everything else, was gone. However, in the intervening years, the chimney that once stood above it collapsed down the shaft and the debris was now strewn all across the floor. But that was years ago and I was again getting distracted. I was on the search for this tunnel. I turned out of the kitchen and looking down the hall, For the second time in a day, my foot was rooted to the floor. Silhouetted against the entrance arch was the clear shape of a man. 
I couldn't see any detail, and I have to admit, for a second, fear began to rise in me. But we've been here before. I listened to way too many true crime podcasts. It was just the farmer, the former resident. He called down to me. I have to go, and I have to lock up the gate, he explained. He thought I had driven in through the iron gates and didn't want to lock me in. So I recounted my journey telling him how I'd crossed the fence and walked through the trees, and this left him satisfied. He turned and headed away. Presumably he left through some entrance I hadn't seen. The man must have been in his eighties to have lived in this house as a boy, and getting into the basement the way I had wasn't easy. I wondered in that moment what this corridor looked like to him. Did he see the bare stone walls and the rubble strewn across the floor that I did? Or did he see the house he had lived in as a boy? Painted walls, the sound of voices, warmth and life. This was a distraction though. I needed to set about my business and find that tunnel. I went more methodically from room to room with a torch on my phone. In the fourth room I glanced in. There was a curious room off a room as such. With hopes rising I shone the light around but there was nothing in there either. It was only when I turned to walk back that I noticed it. A curious opening in the back wall in the rough shape of a cross. I poked my head in through the hole and bingo, this was it. I was looking into a long, narrow chamber. It only extended about six feet to the right but to the left it continued on about ten feet and there was a T-junction with passages to the left and to the right. This was clearly the tunnel. I was now faced with the dilemma. There was no question I was going in but it was tight enough and dark. Getting in, and more importantly, getting out, wouldn't be easy. And what if something happened in there? There would be no phone signal. To soothe my fears, I sent my housemate a text with the location, although I'm not sure what I expected him to do. Then, in I went. It took a few minutes to wriggle through the hole and drop down onto the floor beneath. Once down, I stood up and looked around. To the right, the chamber was bricked up, save a small stone drain at the base of the wall where water trickled through. At the other end was the T-junction. It didn't disappoint. One side was blocked off, but the passage to the right continued. The stone wall curved away from me, so I could only see about ten feet ahead. A large pipe that seemed old, but maybe more recent than the house itself, had been laid at the base of this passage. The pipe made walking difficult, but I had to follow the tunnel. The passage itself was much narrower than the chamber I had started in had been. I wasn't quite able to stand, but I didn't mind. I went in 10 metres, then 20 metres. This was intriguing. I've been in lots of passageways in big houses like this before, but they were used by servants. This was different. It was much smaller, too cramped for regular use. As I continued on, I realised I'd passed out through the foundations of the house and must have been under what was originally the front lawn. Where did this lead? After maybe 30 metres, I stopped again and looked forward. There was no end in sight. But it was then I realised that I couldn't move as easily as I had 20 metres back. The passage was narrowing. It was gradual so you didn't really notice it, but this was dangerous. If I continued on much further, I wouldn't be able to turn around, and crawling backwards would be tough. I looked forwards down the tunnel. It was appealing. It went on and on. Why would someone build this if it didn't lead somewhere? Maybe if I crawled on another 20 metres it would open up but maybe it wouldn't. It was then I had my moment of clarity. I was pretty sure whatever was down there, it wasn't worth being the last thing I ever saw, or in a better case scenario, it wasn't worth someone having to launch a rescue mission to get me out. Stood there in the dark, a sense of claustrophobia started to rise in me. 
I couldn't shake the idea that something or someone was going to grab my leg from behind. As soon as I reassured myself this was illogical, I began to focus on the fact that I was crawling on what seemed to be a water pipe. What if it burst and the tunnel started to fill up with water? This all sounds stupid, I know, but when you're crawling in a tight space in the dark, logic is not your friend. It took what seemed like an age to turn around and crawl back, but maybe it was five minutes at most which had elapsed before I stood at the strange cross-shaped hole in the wall. This time, crawling back through into the basement was trickier, but as I climbed out, I had a sense I had made the wrong decision. That feeling that I had left something behind or made a mistake, and it lingered. Having slithered back through the hole in the wall, I dusted myself down, and that feeling started to bug me. I distracted myself by pondering what the tunnel was for. Fanciful, even childish notions preoccupied my mind of a secret chamber at its end as I climbed back through the house. This time I followed a gentle slope that was probably once a stairway and now a gentle incline of rubble. This brought me back to the ground floor and I stepped out through what was once a large window into the back garden. I tried to picture in my mind's eye the old man I had met as a boy playing on neatly trimmed lawns but nature had completely taken over. The only semblance of what this had once been was a monkey puzzle tree. Native to South America, these were planted in gardens like this in the 18th and 19th century as a symbol of prestige and status. As I rounded the house to leave for the third time that day, my foot was rooted to the floor. This time it wasn't a person, but fresh car tracks. On this occasion it had nothing to do with my habit of overindulging true crime podcasts. This time it was a realisation. It finally hit me what my mistake was. My feeling of having left something behind or missed out had nothing to do with the tunnel, but more to do with what was definitely a missed opportunity. Throughout my afternoon in the house, I had spent my time trying to imagine what this building had once looked like, but I was ultimately driven by my search for that tunnel. Then the old man had appeared, someone who had actually lived in the building, but in that moment I had remained fixated on the tunnel, viewing him almost as a potential obstacle. I had indulged in what was a childish fantasy that this subterranean stone tunnel would reveal something incredible. The more I reflected on that tunnel, the reality that it was almost certainly just functional rather than mysterious dawned on me. However, looking down at the old man's car tracks, I realised he would have been different. The conversation I could have had with him would have been far more insightful. I spend my days in archives looking for insights like that conversation would have been. Imagine the stories he has. Imagine what this podcast could have been like with his memories. I should have recognised this the second I saw him. Your average Irish farmer doesn't wear a cravat. Five days later, I'm still ruining that decision. And sadly, that road trip hasn't solved my problem with writer's block or the bad week I'm having. Given how far I veered from the normal structure in this episode, that series, The Road to O'Crohan, that I've been working on, still seems far, far away to me. Until next time, Sloan. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.